Thanks, Intercausal. I love it when guys step out of their comfort zone for the sake of others and do things that are uncomfortable for them. And uh, it, it feels really unnatural, but uh, we, we celebrate everyone that takes a step out of their comfort zone, everybody that uh, does something in faith that God would bless. And so thanks, my friend. I'm proud of uh, where you've come from and uh, where you're going to go. I'm excited. I want to talk to you today about one of my fondest childhood memories, and it's, it's of a box of Lego that my mom had collected and that was sitting in uh, our attic, which is an upstairs room. And uh, I've got memories of spending hours and hours, uh, day after day, playing there and building things and then uh, destroying things and, uh, and putting it back in the box and then rebuilding them again. And uh, I'm not sure if, how many of you are, remember these things, but I also had those green plastic army men. And I had a set of those and I had this box of Lego. And so day after day, because nobody lived in the room, I had the floor space to myself. And so I would build villages and cities and roads and uh, tanks and uh, uh, ships and airplanes and all of those kind of things. And then my army men would do battle. And at the end of the battle, I would break everything down, take it into the component pieces and put them all back in the box. And then the next day, I would rebuild something else. Because for tomorrow's battle, I didn't want them to do battle in the same city with the same tanks and the same, same ships. I wanted it to be a different city with different tanks and different ships and different roads. And uh, it, was, it, was, it had to be different the next day. It was, for me, I suppose, as, as a young child, a creative outlet. And uh, here's the point. The, the thing that I built today wasn't that good tomorrow. It didn't satisfy tomorrow. It was good today, and I had fun with it, and I played with it today. But tomorrow, I wanted something new, and I wanted something different. See, the problem with Lego today is that, first of all, it's grossly overpriced. And secondly, you can't just buy component pieces of Lego. You can only buy a specific item. So you buy a ship. And the only thing that those pieces can build is a ship, which is great, but you can play with it once or twice, and then it gets a bit old. You want a new ship, and so you take it apart. But all those component pieces can't be built into something else. They can only be rebuilt into that same ship. It's a problem. And I guess I, I get that I sound like a grumpy old man, and I'm really not. I just really miss my Lego. It's that, that, that's the fact of the matter. Um, in other words, the Lego today is only good, it's only useful for one situation. It's only useful for one situation. And so kids today lose their imagination because every time they want to try and build something, they end up building the same thing every single time. They can't build something different. They have to end up building the same thing. And it's soul-destroying to be a builder and having to build the same thing over and over again because there's nothing else that those component pieces can make. That's why your kids are frustrated. They need better Lego. Just buy them better Lego. <laughs> I think we do the same thing with the gospel, though. So God forms us, and he builds us, and then he breaks us down, and we try to build them up, and our tendency is to build them up the same way because it's something that we know, it's something that we're comfortable with, and so we want to build up the same thing in the same way. And so we never allow God to do anything new in us, and we never allow God to do anything new through us. We never do anything new with God, and it's a tragedy. I want to talk to you today about Reformation about reformation. You might have heard this word. It's, it's used to describe a time in church history because the, the Reformation was a historical event in church history. But reformation is something that God wants to do in us and through us every single day on an ongoing, continuous basis. It's something that God wants to do. 
Something is formed, it's made or it's built, and then it's reformed. It changes shape, it changes form, and it looks different. It performs a different function. So when I break down my Lego today and I build something new with it tomorrow, the, it, it's still Lego. Although, it's, although it, it's, it's changed shape, it's changed form, it's changed use, it's doing something completely different, it's still Lego. It hasn't changed what it is. I think one of the reasons people are so reluctant to allow God to reform them into something different is because they, uh, if their faith gets reformed into something that is not familiar with them, that has a different outworking, to them it feels like it's not their faith. It feels like it's something else. Friends, if you build something different with Lego, it's still Lego. Allow God to reform you into something that's unfamiliar, into something that's different. Because what was good for today, what was nice and fun to play with and do better with today, tomorrow is not the same. You need something new. You need to be reformed tomorrow. There's no greater adventure in God than allowing Him to reform your faith into something that's useful tomorrow useful for tomorrow, and I also think there's no greater tragedy than day after day building the same thing the same way with God. Friends, God wants to form us, and then He wants to reform us continually. So I want to look at, first of all, the formation of the church, and then I want to discuss the reformation of the church, and then our own reformation, how God wants to continually reform us. So we start with the formation of the church, Acts chapter 2. It says this from verse 1. When the Feast of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Without warning, there was a sound like a strong wind, gale force. No one could tell where it came from. It filled the whole building. Then, like a wildfire, the Holy Spirit spread through their ranks, and they started speaking in a number of different tongues as the Spirit prompted them. There were many Jews staying in Jerusalem just then, devout pilgrims from all over the world. When they heard the sound, they came on the run. Then when they heard, one after the other, their own mother tongues being spoken, they were thunderstruck. They couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what was going on. And they kept saying, aren't these Galileans? Galileo, Galileo, Figaro, will you let me go? How come we're hearing them talk in various mother tongues? Parthenians, Medes, and Elamites, visitors from Mesopotamia, and about 20 other people there from different, lang- different languages, different nations, different tribes, even Cretans and Arabs. And they said this, they're speaking our languages, describing God's mighty works. So this is the formation of the church. And we see that the formation of the church is very similar to the formation of man. So when God creates man, he bends down and he stoops down into the dust and he, he forms man from the dust of the earth. And then, and then it says in Genesis chapter 2, he breathes his breath. He breathes the breath of life into man. And we see at the formation of the church in Acts chapter 2 that uh, there's 12 dusty men sitting in a room upstairs and God breathes. He breathes the same breath of life that he breathed into Adam in the book of Genesis. He now breathes into the life of the church and, and it gives life to the church. And we see the first thing that becomes evident and obvious that the breath of God and the life of God is with them is that uh, the gospel becomes accessible to people that it was not accessible to previously. The law was given to the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. It was only given in Hebrew. It wasn't given to all of those people that are listed in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden, as God breathes life into the church, the gospel becomes accessible in in those people's language. And what God is saying is, as I breathe life into the church, as I form the church, it's not just for the Israelites any longer. It is now for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. This gospel is for those people, the ordinary people of the earth. And that's what God is saying as he breathes life into the church. I think one of the saddest times in church history is a period that's known as the the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages is a period between 1200 and 1500. 
Uh, and it's called the Dark Ages because the Scriptures were hidden from the people of God. From the people, the Scriptures were hidden. So the, the thing that characterized the church was the separation of the clergy or the priests and the laity or the commoners. The priests were the only ones that had access to the Scriptures. They were the only ones who spoke Hebrew, Latin, Greek. The only ones who could interpret the Scriptures and the only ones who could read and teach the Scriptures. In other words, their words were literally taken as the Word of God to the commoners. So salvation and repentance were available, but they weren't freely available. They had to be obtained through the purchasing of indulgences from the priests. And this condemned the poor, the marginalized, the unloved, those on the fringes of society. This condemned them. Their salvation was literally, they could not afford it. They were able to come to church, but they were not able to participate in church because it was out of their grasp. It was beyond them. They were unable to purchase it. Complete salvation and participation in the gospel was, by all accounts, out of their reach. Because the scriptures were locked away and open to interpretation only by the priests, they were ignorant of the fact that salvation and forgiveness was within their grasp. The gospel had become inaccessible. A couple of hundred years after God has says, this gospel will be preached to all nations, tribes, and tongues, and accessible to them in their own language, a couple of hundred years later, it is inaccessible. In the year 1517, a man called Martin Luther, built on the works of men before him, such as John Wycliffe, he nails what's called his 95 Theses to the, uh, the All Saints Church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And what, is, what, what those 95 things were, were essentially 95 statements of faith where he was, he was a priest, and these are 95 things that he believes uh, where, where the church had misinterpreted and misrepresented the gospel. And this is the start of what is known as the Protestant Reformation. The church, uh, th- these things were so revolutionary, they caused the church at the time to split into Protestants, those who were protesting, and Catholics, those uh, Protestants protesting the Catholics' interpretation of what the gospel should be. And it, it fractured the church. But what, what Martin Luther did was he not only challenged the status quo theologically, but he, he translated the Bible from Latin and Greek and Hebrew into German so that it was once again put into the hands of the commoners. The gospel was made accessible through the work of reformation. As the church reformed, the gospel was reformed and it got into the hands of common people like me and like you. Martin Luther is a hero of mine. You see, friends, the gospel doesn't teach us to uh, build one thing one way. That's not the type of faith that the gospel teaches. That's what the law taught, build one thing one way. The gospel is a box of Lego that you can build and reform and you you can build it up and play with it and then uh, break it back down again and reform it into something that's useful for tomorrow. That's what the gospel is, friends. God doesn't... God gives us his Bible as a plan, and then he says to us, not only does he give us a plan, but then he says to us, I'm a master builder. Apprentice yourself to me, and I will teach you how to build. A man can build anything with a plan and a master builder. Anything can be built with a plan and a master builder. So the anniversary of the Reformation of the church uh, was a few weeks ago, and the 95 statements that Luther made are summed up into what is called the five solas. Sola Fide, sola gracia, sola Christus, sola scriptura, and sola Deo gloria. You don't need to learn Latin, don't worry. This is what they mean. Grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory. Those are the five 
uh, that's what his 95 statements can be summed up into those five points. I'm going to take a couple of minutes and just go through each one of those uh, and how the church was reformed, how the gospel was reformed, and how God wants to continually reform our faith to be something that's useful and adventurous. Our faith should be an adventure tomorrow that it isn't today. So number one, faith alone. The church has been saying at the time that you achieved salvation by faith in Jesus, but also through your good works. Good works such as giving of alms, such as uh, working, such as praying. Uh, Basically, what they're saying is faith in Christ alone. Faith alone is not enough. It needs to be faith plus your works that that leads to salvation. And this thing, faith alone, uh, became the cornerstone of the, the Protestant Reformation. It was, the, it was the, one of the biggest fracture points. Uh, the just shall live by faith. Because what Luther recognized was that uh, the just were not living by faith. It wasn't faith alone. It was good works. And uh, the, the majority of people, those good works were out of their reach. They could not access it. And so in their minds, salvation was beyond them. Luther came and he said, no, it is by faith alone. The Bible says it is by faith alone. Faith alone. Salvation was out of their reach because they were never able to give enough, to pray enough, to do enough. And it it might sound simple to us right now. Of course we save our faith in Jesus alone, but the church at the time was torn torn apart by it. If we're honest, some of us still don't live by this principle. We don't live, we don't believe that faith alone is enough to save us. Sometimes we're all tempted by good works. The argument is, I'm a good person. To which I, I reply, maybe, that means nothing. Being a good person actually counts for very little. God says, if you want your works to count, that's fine. If you want to take your works into, into account, that's fine. But you're going to have a problem. Here's why. Your standard for good works is not my standard. So what you think is a good work is not good by my standard. That's the bad news. The worst news is that your standard for bad works meets my standard for bad works. In other words, if you want to take works into account, you're never going to take a step forward. You're never going to progress. You're never going to go forward. You're only going to go backwards. It's not going to be two steps forward, one step back. It's going to be three steps backwards if you want to take your works into account. See, friends, because God's standard for goodness, for good works, God's standard for goodness is perfection. We are not perfect. Our good works, if they are not perfect, are not good enough. They count for absolute zero unless they are perfect, which we know they are not. See, under the law, where I have to perform to earn God's favor, perfection is a stick that I get beat with. Under faith in Christ, perfection is something that I can either accept by faith, or I can reject it. It's up to me. My kids pretend to be things all the time. Firemen, cowboys, ballet dancers, princesses. They pretend to be studying during exam times. They pretend to be listening when I'm disciplining them. But what they never do is they never pretend to be perfect. They pretend to fly planes. They pretend to fly themselves because that is more realistic than pretending to be perfect. They never pretend to be perfect because it is unreal. It's too unrealistic for them. And yet as adults, we pretend that all the time. We pretend that we are perfect by thinking our good works can contribute to God's favor and to our salvation. It contributes nothing. And when we fail, we say, oh, it's okay, I'm not perfect. Well, which is it? Either you're not perfect, in which case your works count for nothing, or you are perfect, in which case work for it. Friends, we all know that I'm not perfect, and I'm pretty sure you aren't either. Faith alone. Number two, grace alone. It is by grace that you are saved, Ephesians 2 says. 
Ephesians 2.8, by grace you are saved through faith. It's not grace plus merit. Merit means you are worthy of something. You merit a salary. If you work, you merit a salary. You are worthy of a salary. You have earned a salary. That is what it means to merit. It is grace alone. It is not grace plus merit. Because the problem is you aren't worthy of salvation. You haven't earned salvation. You haven't earned favor. You haven't earned God's favor. You are not worthy of God's favor. It is not grace plus merit because you haven't merited anything. God says that the wages of sin is death. What you are owed, what you are merited, what you are worthy of is death. That's what he says. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God through Christ Jesus is righteousness. What God does is he gives us as a free gift righteousness, which means righteousness means we owe nothing of the debt caused by sin to God. We owe nothing of that debt to God. It is a free gift from him. See, the thing that makes Christianity different from every other religion is the free gift of grace. God says you're never going to be able to earn enough to get yourself out of the debt of sin. And so I'm going to pay it for yourself. I'm not going to cancel the debt. I'm going to pay it so you owe nothing. Not only am I going to pay that debt, I'm then going to give you everything that you didn't earn, everything that you didn't merit, everything that you were not worthy of. I'm going to give it to you. That's what grace is. It pays the debt that we did owe, and it gives us what we didn't deserve. That's what grace did. Faith alone. Grace alone. Number three, Scripture alone. So the church at the time was getting into the habit of building on Scripture as well as the tradition of the past. And I think it's a dangerous place to be because when we do that, we elevate our traditions to the authority level of Scripture, which they are not. Traditions in themselves are neither good nor bad. It's what we do with them that determines whether they're good or bad and what authority we ascribe to them. They're very much like cell phones in that case. Uh, cell phones are neither good nor bad. It's what we do with them and the authority that we give to them that determine whether they're good or bad. So if I use my cell phone to connect with somebody, a friend overseas, if I use it to uh, check in with my wife every day to conduct a business deal, and I put my cell phone to bed long before I go to bed, I haven't given it authority over me, I've used it for good. The cell phone hasn't become good, I've just used it for good, right? If I use it to access pornography, if I use it to detonate a bomb, if I use it to cyber bully someone, I've used that cell phone for bad. If it keeps me up past my bedtime, it interrupts my business meetings and my friendships and my conversations, it's, I've given it authority over me and I've used it for bad. I haven't made the cell phone bad, I've just used it for bad. Traditions are the same. Traditions are neither good nor bad. I've got traditions in my family. My, one of the traditions is that we have Christmas, we, we have a, a Sunday lunch together on a Sunday. That's not a good tradition. It's a tradition that we use for good. But if I use that tradition on a Sunday to condemn one of my family members who is not able to make a Sunday because they are working or they've got something else on, then I've used it for bad. And I've assigned to it an authority that that tradition doesn't have. If your tradition is causing you to go into debt, if your tradition is causing you to violate your conscience or your faith, you are using your tradition for bad. Cut it out. You're giving it an authority that is equal to Scripture and it doesn't belong there. Scripture alone has authority. Faith alone, grace alone, and Scripture alone. Number four, Christ alone. The Reformation at the time was Christ alone, not Christ plus Mary, not Christ plus the people who pray for you after you're dead. The gospel today is Christ alone. It's not Christ plus my ancestors. 
It's not Christ plus my mom who prayed for me because she was a really good person. It's not Christ plus any of those people. It is Christ alone. Christ alone. See, all of those people are not good or bad. I've got ancestors, and I thank God for them. I try and live in a way that honors them because they've left me a legacy, and I want to build on that. But I don't assign them the same authority as, as Christ has. Those that I knew when they were alive, I trust, but I don't place my trust in them. Here's the difference. So to trust you means that I ask you to do something, or I tell you something, or I give you something, and I trust you with it. I trust in what I can see, right? When I place my trust in someone, I'm trusting who they are. So when they're alive, I can trust who they are. But when they're dead, I cannot trust who they are. So when my ancestors were alive, those that I knew, I trusted. Once they have passed on, I don't put my trust in them. I can put my trust in Christ alone because he's not dead. He is alive in Christ alone. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and Christ alone. And lastly, to God alone be the glory. So the Reformation at the time was necessary because people in the church hierarchy were taking glory for themselves. The states and the church were not separate. They were one. And so church leaders also wielded political authority. And we know that power corrupts. Too much power corrupts a man's character. And so uh, men were taking glory for themselves. Friends, don't we do that ourselves? Don't we take glory for ourselves and don't we give glory to others? In this church, we have a saying that uh, men and women can be honored, but God is the only one who gets glory. God is the only one who gets glory. To honor someone means we respect them for something that they've done or something that they are, a characteristic. We respect them. We give them respect. We give them honor. To glorify someone means we put them on a pedestal above us and we worship them. Friends, God alone is worth the glory. We don't worship pastors in this church. We don't worship celebrity pastors. We don't worship worship leaders, celebrity worship leaders. We don't, we don't give glory to worship leaders. We don't give glory to sportsmen. To God alone is glory, is glory due. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and to God alone be the glory. See, the gospel, friends, isn't a recipe. The gospel is a plan. God says, come to me and I'll teach you how to build. Come to me and I'll teach you how to build. I'll teach you how to build yourself and then I'll teach you how to build others. And once you've built yourself and once you've built others, I'll teach you how to build cities because once you build cities, those cities will become cities of refuge where other broken people can come in and find uh, how to build themselves and then how to build others. And they can then go and build cities for themselves where others can find refuge, where others can find safety, where others can find shelter and learn how to build. God says, that's what I want to do. The gospel, friends, is not a recipe. It's a plan. It's a plan and a builder to build ourselves, to build others, and to build cities. Too many people think that the gospel is a recipe for success. It's not. God says, come to me. I will give you a plan. I will give you the Bible. And then not only will I give you a plan, but I will, I, I, as a master builder, if you apprentice yourself to me, I will teach you how to build. A man can build anything with a plan and a master builder. Allow God to reform your faith, friends. My faith is continually being rebuilt. It's continually being reformed. How I express my faith today is different to how I did last year, and that's good. That's good, because the same thing that I built yesterday and it was good is not the same thing that God wants to build in me tomorrow. He wants to build something different that is good and purposeful for tomorrow, friends. Will you allow him to do the same with your faith? Will you allow him to, as he has reformed the church, will you allow him to reform your faith today and tomorrow and the next day? 
You see, how you were created is more important than how you were born. You were created perfect. You were created in the image of God, but yet you were born into a world that is broken, that has fallen from the state that God created it in. And when we try and reform ourselves, when we try and reform ourselves, all we ever do is we reform ourselves into a slightly better version of our broken, fallen self. When God reforms us, He doesn't reform us how we were born. He reforms us back to how we were created, friends. We were created perfect. And so when God reforms us, He doesn't reform us into a better version of our born self. He reforms us into the perfect version of our created self. And today, you've, today you, there's a choice before you. If you've never placed all of your trust in Jesus as the creator, as the master builder, you will never be able to rebuild your own life. If you've never placed your trust in Jesus to, uh, to, to build your life as the master builder, with a plan and a master builder, there's going to be a button that comes on your screen that says, today I give my life to Jesus. Today I put my trust in Jesus as my creator and as my master builder. If you've never made that decision, if you've never done that, why don't you click that button? We've got guys standing by that would love to pray with you. It'll be, a, it'll be my delight and it'll be their privilege to pray with you. We want to help you take a step towards building. We want to put the first brick in the wall. We want to help you with that. So won't you click that button? Won't you say, even if you request prayer, someone will pop up and a, a, a separate chat box will come up so that they can connect with you and help you put a first brick in the wall. Friends, may I end in prayer for the rest of us then? Father, thank you that you have not left us alone. Thank you that you have given us a plan. Thank you that you've given us a master builder in yourself, in the Holy Spirit, to apprentice ourselves to Thank you that you have plans to continually rebuild us into something new. Would you give us the faith to trust you with what you are rebuilding in us? We don't want to build the same thing every day. We want to have a faith adventure with you. Would you rebuild us? Would you reform us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thank you so much for being with us today. Don't be a stranger. Once you connect in with us, uh, drop us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Leave a chat in the chat box. Uh, we don't want you to build from afar. We want to build from close. We want to establish a community with you. Thanks for being with us.